Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. I've found myself asking this question a lot lately. Where is God? Just as you look around the world and you see even just the tension in our culture, you go, where is God? Have you asked this? Where is God? Where is God in Ukraine? Where is God in politics? Where is God in our schools? Just in the chaos of life, where is God? Where are you, God? And fortunately, as I've read the Bible, I've found some answers to that question. And so I want to share those with you today. We're going to get right into it. If you've got a Bible with you, we're in Exodus 25. Get it out, turn it on, go to Exodus 25. Exodus is right near the beginning of your Bible. And we're going to talk about this question, where is God? We're going to look at about six chapters today. And these six chapters are hands down, without a doubt, the most boring six chapters in the Bible. Like, let's just get that out there right now. Okay, you thought those genealogies were tough. Wait till you hear this stuff. Because for six chapters, God's going to tell the Israelite people to build this thing called a tabernacle. He'll tell them what color yarn to use. He'll tell them what kind of animal fur to, to sew together. He'll tell them what should be made of gold, of silver, of bronze. He'll give them the exact dimensions of the tabernacle. He'll even tell them what species of wood to use. Are you fired up about this stuff? It is so boring, and it's awesome. And I'm going to prove it to you that these words that were spoken by God, written down more than 3,000 years ago, answer the question, where is God? And if we'll listen, these words will give us incredible hope. Do you need hope? I do. Let's go. We're tracking the story of the Israelites. The Israelites are God's chosen people. They have this covenant relationship with God where he says, if you will trust me and obey me, I'll be your God. I'll be with you and I'll give you all kinds of incredible blessing in your life. And if we just sort of step back for a minute and look at the whole of Scripture, that shouldn't surprise us. This is who God is. There's this theme running through the Bible that God wants to be with his people, and he wants good things for his people. So page one of the Bible, we read that God is walking and talking in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Fast forward to the end, and God says, I'm going to build a new heaven and a new earth, and I will be there. I'll be with my people, and I will be their God. This theme that runs through the whole Bible is this idea that God wants to be with people that he loves. You want to spend time with people that you love, right? Friends, and and maybe you want to spend time with family. God wants to do the same thing. He wants to spend time with people that he loves, but the Israelites are kind of like us. And what they so often experience is that God feels distant, even absent, and they start to ask, where are you, God? We know that God wants to be with his people, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So we're going to track this story. We're going to talk about a guy named Moses, who's the leader of the Israelites. God goes up on a mountain to meet with God, up on Mount Sinai. God's going to give Moses instructions for what the Israelites are supposed to do next. And it's in some of these instructions we will see the character of God, and we'll find out where is he. Here we go, Exodus 25, verse 1. God's speaking, and he says to Moses, Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. 
You're to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you're to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Here's your assignment. Gather up, he says, gather up an offering. Gold, silver, linens, yarn. Remember, the Israelites are wandering in the desert. They're waiting. They're in the Sinai desert. They're waiting to hear from God. He's rescued them out of Egypt. They're waiting to hear from him. What's next? At this point, there's a couple of million of them, and they're just campers. They're just in the desert, and they're waiting to hear from God. And God goes, put together an offering. Bring me an offering of gold. And so, now, where are they going to get this stuff? Well, if you remember, back when they were in Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, and God comes and he rescues them. But before they leave Egypt, he tells them to do something. The night before they leave, he says, go and talk to your neighbors and tell your neighbors, ask your neighbors if they would give you all their precious metals, their gold, their silver. And so that's what they do. And their Egyptian neighbors give the Israelites all kinds of gold. Well, now we know why. At the time, you're like, why is God asking this? Now we know why. Because God knew down the road he would rescue the people out of Egypt and he would ask them for an offering, these things of gold, these things of, of silver. And they had it because God had told them to gather these things. Bring to me an offering. Now he tells them what to do with it all. Exodus 25, verse eight. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me. Gather this offering. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. So he's telling them to, to craft something, to make something. He says, make a tabernacle. It's going to be a big tent, but the word tabernacle, it pretty simply just means a home. It's like a residence or a dwelling. God goes, make me, make me a home. And then he says that it's to be a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a resting place. And so the instructions that God gives them is to collect this offering and make a place where his presence will come home, will come and dwell. Now that might sound a little silly. You're like, how is God almighty, God who is spirit, going to come and live in a tent? God's just trying to create a space. He's trying to create some kind of place where he can meet with his people. His presence can fill. He can't just rip open the sky and reveal himself. He's too holy. He'd blow us away. So God goes, make this space where we can be together. Make this tabernacle, this sanctuary, and I will come and dwell with my people. What I want to do is spend a few minutes just sort of going through the instructions that God gives for the tabernacle, um, because this is going to answer the question for us, where is God? As we watch and as we listen, it will answer where is God. It will tell us something about his character. Stick with me. I'm going to fly through some of it. And no, it gets a little, um, shall we say, detail heavy. But the first thing that God does is he, he, he tells Moses, I want you Oh, I'm going to impress you with my drawing, by the way. Get ready. He says, I want you to build a box. It's called an ark. We call it the ark of the, of the covenant. This box is about four feet long. It's two feet tall, two feet across. He says, covered in gold inside and out. This, is, this box is the place where you're going to put the law, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that they're on, are going to go inside this box. 
But he says, you can't touch this box once it's built. So put these rings on the corners and have poles. This box is too holy because it, it holds my law. So you've got to have these poles. You can only carry it with these poles. After he tells him to make the box, he says, on top, you're going to make a lid. And this lid is also going to be made of gold. And, and, and on this lid, you're going to create these two sort of angels these heavenly beings, don't those look like angels? These heavenly beings, their wings are supposed to stretch out over the lid. So he says, make this box, make this lid where the wings of the cherubim spread out over the cover. Listen to what God says in verse 22. He says, it's there above the cover. You've got the box, you've got the lid with the cherubim on each end. He says, it's there above the cover between those two cherubim over the ark of the covenant law. I will meet with you and I'll give you all my commands for the Israelites. Build a box, put a lid on top, make it of pure gold. Put poles in it to carry it. What God has just described is not merely a box with a lid on top. What God has just described is a throne. Imagine his presence surrounded by angels, surrounded by heavenly beings. This is a throne, right? When Isaiah has a vision of God's throne, he has this prophetic vision of God's throne. What he sees is the throne of God and, and angels, these holy heavenly creatures with their wings spread out over the throne, praising God, worshiping a holy God. When John in the book of Revelation sees a vision of the throne of God, it's a similar thing. God is asking Moses, build me a throne. First thing that I want you to do, build this box, build this lid. This will be for me a throne where my presence will dwell. We'll talk about why that matters a whole bunch in a few minutes. Next, God says, go back to work. This time you're going to build this table. On this table, you're going to put bread. This bread is an offering. You're going to leave this bread on the table for me. This bread belongs to me, God says. And he says, this thing, you're going to put rings on also. You're going to need poles to carry this table. Remember that the, remember that the Israelites are nomads, right? They're living in the desert. They haven't made it to the promised land yet. So they're just hanging out in the desert. They're waiting and they're going to be traveling over the next number of years and over the next number of centuries. They're going to be traveling into the promised land. The tabernacle is this place that they will take with them. It's a tent. They will set up. They will worship there. They will tear it down. They will move and everything that is in it has to go with them. God tells them you're going to build a lampstand. Very specific. He says on this lampstand, each side, there's going to be three branches. Each branch will have these rosebuds on it. It's very intricate detail. It's all made of pure gold. At the end of each part of the lampstand, there's a cup where the lamp will go. By the time they're done, this thing made of pure gold will weigh 75 pounds. It's worth more than $2 million in gold in today's prices. Build a lampstand for me. The ark, the table, and the lamp will all go inside the tabernacle. Then God goes on and he describes what the tabernacle will look like. And historians have sort of pieced this together about what it is. It's a, a courtyard area around the outside. I, I, I left out, I spared you some drawings. Uh, there's an altar, there's a wash basin, and God gives the exact details for how all of this is going to go. Let me just read a little bit because I want you to hear God speaking, the way God describes the tabernacle for Moses to build. Listen, Exodus 26, verse 1. 
God says, make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together. Do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the curtain in one set. Do the same with the end curtain in the other. Make 50 loops on one curtain, 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other and make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Now, I know when you read this, your eyes can, can cross. You go like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not sure I do either. But just listen to the way God is describing. We're just talking about the curtains so far. 42 feet long, six feet wide. You're going to take 10 of them. You're going to sew them together. You're going to use gold clasps to tie them together. These curtains are going to go over the top of the tabernacle. These are going to make the roof. On top of this set of curtains, he'll give instructions for another set made of hair from animals, from goats woven together. On top of that, he wants another set of curtains. That's made of ram's hides. On top of that, he wants a leather curtain. God is weatherproofing. He's rainproofing the tabernacle. He's building something that is both worthy of his presence, that is holy and beautiful, and that's sturdy, that's structurally sound. He'll describe every bit of it, the courtyard, the walls, the, the, the fencing that goes around the outside, the way that they're to construct the actual tabernacle. And I guess what I want to do with that is just like slow down for a second and look at the detail at which God speaks. Look at the detail level which he communicates to Moses because I think hiding behind the question that we ask of where is God is the real question. Does God even care about us? Does God care about what's going on in my life, in the day-to-day -day rhythm of my life, in my relationships, in my work, in my details? Or is God busy? I mean, you know, he's managing the universe. Maybe he's too busy. He's focused on things that actually matter. Or does he actually care about my life? And you look at the detail level at which God speaks, the detail that he communicates to Moses is something about his character. This is who God is. You put it next to other things that God has said. You know, like Psalm 139, where God says, I know and I've numbered the days of your life. Put that next to Jesus saying in, in Luke 12, God knows the, the number of hairs that are on your head. For some of you, that's not hard to measure, but for some, you know, others it is, and God still knows. Imagine the detail at which God gives these instructions, because that's who God is. And so I would just take that, I would just push that to you and go, let this encourage you. That God is, is, is detail-specific, detail-oriented. Let that inform your worry and your anxiety. Let that inform your frustration. That we have this God who, who isn't just sort of this hands-off manager, isn't just sort of like, I, you know, I do the vision stuff, but you're really in the details. No, he's involved in every intricate detail of our life. He's not a father who's distracted by other things, more important things. He's in a series of everything in our life. Let that encourage you. One more part of the tabernacle, Exodus 26, verse 33. God tells Moses, hang a curtain from the clasps and place the ark of the covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most 
holy place. If the tabernacle is essentially a house, what God is making for himself is a bedroom in this house. You have the tabernacle, you have the courtyard. It's all this place where God wants to meet with his people. You go inside the door of the tabernacle, inside the curtains, and you're in the holy place, the lampstand, the bread. It's all there. Then there's another curtain. It's behind that curtain where God's presence is revealed. It's behind that curtain over the Ark of the Covenant that God's presence will dwell. This is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. This is where God will meet with his people. This is where he will dwell. So he gives them all these precise instructions, the exact measurements. I, I, I flew through, I skipped over a bunch. I would encourage you, go and read about the tabernacle. It's really interesting and it's really important. But he gives them these instructions. Great, now we get to be with God. Well, not really, because not just anyone is allowed to go into the most holy place. God's got to give instructions for that. And so what he does is he, he, he gives instructions there's only one person that can go into the most holy place. It is the high priest. He names Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest. And so while everyone has a part of this tabernacle, all the Israelite people, by the way, it comes in at around $65 million just in gold. Pretty nice tent that they've built in the middle of the desert, right? Everyone has access to the tabernacle, to the courtyard. The priests can go inside. Only the holy of holies, or only the high priest can go into the holy of holies, and he gives very specific instructions for how that happens, even down to what Aaron is supposed to wear. He describes these priestly garments. Look at these handsome fellows and what they got going on. He says to, that he needs to wear something called an ephod. That's like, that's like an apron. It's this thing. He says on top of the shoulders of the ephod, you should have these two onyx, these black stones. On top of these stones should be inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. He tells them to put on their, this, this breast piece, this chest plate. On top of that are going to be 12 more gems. These, again, all represent the tribes of Israel. He says Aaron needs to wear a robe. And down here on the bottom of the robe, he tells them to, to tie on bells. Why bells? God says, I want to hear Aaron coming into the Holy of Holies. Does God know that he's coming? Yes, of course. He already knows that he's coming. But it's part of the intricate detail of what he's describing. Aaron needs to wear a turban on his head. You better not come into God's presence with the top of your head uncovered. God is holy. But it's not just any turban. It has this metal plate on the front, and it says, holy to the Lord, inscribed on there. Underneath all of this is, is a tunic and a, and a sash to sort of complete the outfit. And this is what the high priest will wear to go into the Holy of Holies. You've got the tabernacle with all its specifics. You've got the high priest. He's, he's ready to go. He's got the outfit on. Let's go. Aaron's going to go behind the curtain, except we're still not there. You can't just roll up on God. There's a process for going into the Holy of Holies, into that most holy place. Listen to what Aaron has to do. First, he has to make bread. Then he puts on the garments. Then he slaughters a bull out in the courtyard, and he, and he burns it as, a, as an offering. He paints blood from that bull on the horns of the altar. Then he slaughters a ram, and he burns that. And then another ram. They take the blood from that second ram, and the priest will be anointed with that blood. They wave that blood in front of the Lord. The priest eats the bread and some of the ram, and then he burns what's left. This all takes about seven days, and each day they have to sacrifice another bull, and each day also 
two lambs. And then when all of that is done, the priests can go in and meet with God. And these are the instructions that God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai. I hope he was taking notes because now he has to go down and tell the Israelites and he actually has to execute these instructions. God says, do it exactly the way that I told you. Whew. And, you know, we could read this. And we could go, really? Like, this is boring. Really, God wasted ink to write these six chapters? We could read this and go, this has nothing to do with me. Why am I, why are we even looking into this? And yet I think if we will look at the way God puts together the tabernacle, we'll find something about his character. Because, yes, in a sense, we're not ancient Israelites living thousands of years ago. And so you could go, well, this isn't really for us. Fine, but this is a revelation of God's character. This is showing us something about who God is. And 3,500 years later, I believe it answers the question for us, where is God? When I'm struggling, when I'm disappointed, when life knocks me off my feet, where is God? Two answers I think it gives us. The first one is this. I think it tells us that God is on the throne. That's the first answer. God is on the throne. I, I hear people say all the time, God is in control. And I understand it. We say that in times of despair, times when we're, we're worried about something. And it's a line of, of comfort to us. God is in control. So for me, though, just, just my opinion, I tend to not use that phrase. Because when I hear someone say that everything's under control, they're usually lying. They're usually like trying to convince themselves, right? Like you walk into the kitchen, smoke alarms going off, water's boiling over the pot, spaghetti sauce everywhere, and you go, everything's under control. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. So when we say that about God, what I imagine is God in heaven, puppet master, he's working the strings, trying to stay just one step ahead of what's going on. That's not God. God's not in heaven like, hey, everything's under control. Nothing to see here. Don't worry about it, folks. I mean, it's true that he's in control, but I think it's more precise to say that God is on the throne. And that means that he's, first of all, that he's alive. And it means that he has authority over all things that he's created. Isn't this who you want God to be? Don't you want God on the throne? When you turn on the news and it feels like there's chaos in the world like every day, when you read a story and it feels like evil is winning, don't you want to know that God is on the throne? I do. When life just sideswipes you, something in your family, something in your works, don't you want to know that God is on the throne? I do. When you love someone and, and, and they, they get really sick, don't you want to know that God is on the throne, that he has authority over all things, even over illness and disease that someone you love might have? God is on the throne. The thing about God is he literally can't not be on the throne. He is always on the throne. And you more, the more you read the Bible, the more you read this language that describes God on his throne. In fact, Daniel, Daniel has this prophetic vision of God, and he describes his throne as, as sitting on a chariot. It has wheels. And what he's saying is that even when God is moving in the world, he's still on his throne. He's like mobile God. Like he can go anywhere, but he's still on his throne. He doesn't have to step off his throne to interact in your life, to work in your life and mine. He remains 
seated on his throne as the one who has authority over all things. I hope we would find comfort in that, that God is on the throne. And there's no one that's going to dethrone him, and there's no one who has a higher, more significant throne. In fact, Isaiah says, God, your throne is beyond the stars. So any earthly king or earthly power or leader might establish their own throne. It would never even touch God's throne. He is enthroned in heaven all the time. That is his place where he has authority over all things. One more place that God is. The tabernacle tells us that God is present. He's present with his people. So right now God is here with us. And when you drive to work this week, God is with you. And when you send your kids or your grandkids off to school and you wonder if they're going to be okay, God's with them. From page one of the Bible all the way to the end, God is shouting from the heavens, I'm with you. I'm right there. All the prophecies that speak of Jesus, of God coming to earth, what do they say to call Jesus? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the helper. What does he say? The helper will be with you. God is shouting to us, I am with you. He wanted to be with the Israelites. He wants to be present with you and with me. Fast forward to the New Testament. Hebrews 9 does this incredible thing where it turns all this and it says the tabernacle was great, but the tabernacle was just a shadow of what was to come in Christ. The tabernacle was just, it was this beautiful, holy place where God met with his people, but it was a temporary solution. It was a temporary presence with his people. But through Jesus Christ, the temporary is gone. There's a permanent solution that we would have full access to God's presence. In the tabernacle, just the priest could go in. And he had to go in through the sacrifice of animals to atone for his sin. But listen to this. Hebrews 9 says that Jesus didn't enter the holy place, God's presence, by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered God's presence, the most holy place, once and for all by his own blood. So for us, obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus' blood is the perfect blood so we can meet with God and we can be in his presence all the time. The high priest could go in to be with God one time a year. And the tabernacle had to be built just right. And he had to put on just the right clothes and he had to perform just the right rituals, the ceremonies. Because of Jesus, we don't have to do any of that. Because of Christ's blood, we have full access to God all the time. The tabernacle is just a shadow. It points forward to Jesus Christ. So where's God? He's on his throne. And he's here. He's on his throne. He's God Almighty on high. Some days it might feel like he's lost some power. Oh, he hasn't. And he's here with us. He's king and he's present. He sees us. He knows everything that you're going through. He knows every situation in your family. He knows every thought that you have. He knows everything that's going on at work. He knows the stress that you have with parents or with kids or with siblings. He hears you when you pray. He laughs with you when you laugh. And he cries with you when you cry. 
Don't believe the lie that God is distant. Don't believe the lie that he's absent, that he's some distracted father. Don't believe that he's not concerned with every detail of your life. He is. He is God Almighty. He is king on his throne. And he's here with you and with me. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for your word. Thanks that it tells us who you are. Thanks that you don't leave holes where we have to wonder if you love us or if you want good things for us. And thanks for showing us how you're concerned with every detail of our life. God, we could look at this passage and, and feel like this doesn't apply to us. We could read this and, and just being honest, God, we could feel like, man, it's boring these details out of context. I don't understand them. But God, it shows us who you are. God Almighty on your throne and Emmanuel, God with us. Thanks, God. Thanks that you never stepped down from your throne. Thank you that, yes, you're in control, but, but not the way we, we say we're in control. Bigger than that, you're in authority over all things created all the time. You have authority over every thought, every word, every problem that we face, our future, our anxiety. But you don't remain distant. You're here with us, holding our hand, walking with us because you love us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his blood. God, I thank you that we don't have to live under these ceremonial laws. I mean, they were gracious because your people could come and meet with you, but we have something so much better, something perfect in Jesus Christ that we have full access to you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave your blood and your life so that we could have life. Thank you that we have access. May we remember that there's nowhere that we go. We could ascend to the heavens or the depths of the earth, and you are there. You walk with us. You go with us. Emmanuel, thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.